You've probably heard Alas say that many malpractice claims could have been prevented or mitigated by a better engagement letter. Just what are the key elements of an effective engagement letter? I'm Terry Garland, and you are listening to The Portable Ethics Lawyer. Today, we're joined by Betsy Fahey, Senior Loss Prevention Counsel at Alas. Hello, and welcome, Betsy. Thanks, Terry. I'm happy to be here. Betsy, why are engagement letters so important? I'm glad you asked, Terry. As you pointed out, having a good engagement letter can help lawyers defend a malpractice claim or even prevent one entirely. Engagement letters serve a critical purpose in documenting the key points of the law firm's agreement with its client in writing. At alas, we have seen many examples in which a firm was able to defeat a malpractice claim because its engagement letter had clarified the identity of its client or define the scope of its work. Good engagement letters help firms identify and deal with conflicts of interest. And they can help firms avoid misunderstandings with their clients. Sometimes they are legally required, but even if this is not the case, an engagement letter facilitates good communication with your clients. To address a threshold question, when is an engagement letter needed? Our view is that lawyers should send an engagement letter to every new client. After you have determined that this is a client and matter the firm would like to accept, then the next step should be preparing and sending the engagement letter. At Alas, we also recommend sending a new engagement letter when you accept a new matter from an existing client. This is particularly important if the new matter involves a different type of work than the firm has previously done for this client, or if the new engagement is of a different magnitude than the prior work. For instance, if a law firm previously prepared some template employment agreements for a client, and that client is now turning to the same firm for representation in bet the company litigation, a new engagement letter is certainly in order. When I was in private practice at my firm, we could not open a new matter for an existing client without a new engagement letter. This was not a difficult process, though. In many cases where we had an existing engagement letter in place with the client, I could simply send the client a short email confirming the key terms of the new engagement, including the scope of work and referring to the existing terms of engagement. Many alas firms do something similar. Aren't engagement letters sometimes required? Yes, Terry. Sometimes written engagement letters are required by rule or statute. For example, under Rule 1.5c of the ABA's Model Rules of Professional Conduct, which has been adopted in some form in most states, Any contingent fee arrangements must be set forth in a writing signed by the client. And California's Business and Professions Code requires lawyers to enter into written engagement letters with the client for many matters where it is reasonably foreseeable that the client's total expense will exceed $1,000. Likewise, New York law generally requires lawyers to send a written engagement letter for matters with expected fees in excess of $3,000. Other states as well have similar rules or are currently considering them. The bottom line is this. Engagement letters are a fundamental part of quality lawyering. They're good insurance against a host of common problems. Even if there's no ethical or regulatory rule requiring one, you should get in the habit of preparing one for every new engagement. Prudent lawyers usually will prepare an engagement letter. What should they include? Today, I'm going to talk about six essential elements that lawyers should address in their engagement letters. First, 
an effective engagement letter must clearly identify the client. Who are you representing in this matter? Is it the parent corporation or one of its subsidiaries? Or is it one of the founders of a startup or the startup company itself? Is there more than one client? When drafting an engagement letter, take the time to consider who you'll be representing and to document this clearly and carefully in the engagement letter. If the law firm is representing an entity, make sure the letter is addressed to that entity and not its parent or another affiliate, and that the correct address is used. For instance, I have seen an engagement letter that included the correct client name but used the address for one of its foreign subsidiaries, which created confusion. What about subsidiaries or affiliates? The lawyer needs to consider whether the firm is representing those as well in this engagement. Either way, that should be specified in the engagement letter. And if there are multiple clients, then the lawyer should work with his or her firm counsel to include appropriate joint representation language in the engagement letter. Lawyers should also ensure that the addressee is the same as the person or organization identified as the client in the body of the letter. We have seen problems arise when this was not consistent or when the client is referred to in the body of the letter as you instead of by name. Using you in the wrong instance can lead a contact person to believe that the lawyer is representing him personally. Or in a trusts in the states matter, relatives of the client may believe the lawyer is representing the whole family. If this is a potential risk in one of your proposed representations, Note specifically in the engagement letter who you are and are not representing and explain to the constituents how their interests may diverge from those of the client. In one of our recent cases, the law firm was sued by the former shareholders of a corporation. But this claim failed because the firm had carefully documented in its engagement letter that it only represented the corporation and not its individual shareholders. In addition to addressing this point, Head-on in your engagement letters, lawyers should consider sending I'm-not-your-lawyer letters to those individuals who may later assert a claim that the firm was representing them, such as shareholders, limited partners, corporate officers or employees, or other family members, for instance. And of course, while such documentation is critical, lawyers should also be careful to act consistently with it. If your engagement letter notes that you are not representing the corporation's subsidiaries, then do not begin to advise them without updating your written engagement letter. What's the second essential element of an effective engagement letter? This next one should be a fairly obvious point. Your engagement letter should describe, with some specificity, the engagement, the scope of work, what has the client asked the firm to do, what will be the firm's role and responsibilities in the matter, and equally important, are there any aspects of the representation that would typically be covered by the lawyers, but which the client has indicated it will handle internally, or for which it has hired other advisors or law firms? Each of these items must be precisely described in the engagement letter. Our claims files are replete with claims in which the law firm's engagement letter did not accurately reflect the scope of the work it was engaged to perform. Would you give us some examples? Sure. In one case, the law firm in Alas spent about $7 million in resolving a claim where it was alleged that the firm had not uncovered a fraud in its due diligence investigation, while the firm, on the other hand, believed it had not been engaged to perform any due diligence investigation. 
Unfortunately, the engagement letter did not clearly address this issue. In another case, Alas and the law firm spent almost $9 million on a claim that the firm had missed a patent deadline. Again, the firm's engagement letter was ambiguous as to whether the firm had undertaken that work or not. If the client has told you that it will complete part of the work, document this limitation on your role in the engagement letter. Similarly, if you know another firm or other outside advisors have been engaged to provide advice in certain areas, such as tax or employment work, specifically exclude these areas from your scope of work. Describing the scope of work too broadly can also exacerbate conflicts issues. In one claim, the firm was engaged to provide limited employment advice, but used a template engagement letter covering everything under the sun. This turned out to be very unhelpful documentation when the firm later fought a disqualification motion from that former client in a totally different area. What if the engagement changes? We recognize that sometimes there is engagement creep. Originally, the client did not need your tax advice on the deal, but now realizes it does. That's great news for your firm. But in those cases, document the change to the scope of work in the matter, whether through a formal amendment to the engagement letter or through a simple and direct email accurately describing the change. What are the other necessary components of an effective engagement letter? A third key element to be addressed in the engagement letter are any conflict waivers. We won't have time today to get into the details, but if you're going to ask for any conflict waivers, whether an advance waiver for future conflicts or a waiver with respect to a current conflict, these should be included in the engagement letter. Lawyers should work with their firm counsel to draft appropriate conflict waiver language. We have template forms available for our loss prevention partners. In addition, the Alas Digital Resources Library, accessible to lawyers at Alas member firms, includes some additional content on waivers, including a program on advanced conflict waivers from our 2018 annual general meeting. Fourth, engagement letters should address the financial terms of the engagement. Is the firm requiring a retainer? On what basis are the lawyer's fees going to be calculated? What are the firm's hourly rates, and how often do they change? How will the law firm bill the client? And when are those bills due? How will expenses be charged? If there will be a contingent fee arrangement or other alternative fee arrangement, then the details of these arrangements must be spelled out in the engagement letter. What else? Fifth, the engagement letter is also the place in which you should outline the client's responsibilities and role in the matter, as well as any matter-specific terms. Certainly, this should include any areas for which the client is taking responsibility if the firm's role is going to be limited. It should, however, also include the responsibility of the client to cooperate with the lawyers and to provide the firm with access to the necessary documents and personnel in a timely manner in order to complete the engagement. If the engagement involves a matter with critical deadlines, that the firm cannot meet without the client's active cooperation, such as a patent filing, then this should be spelled out in the engagement letter. And firms may consider building in appropriate timelines for the client's responses. A good engagement letter should also identify key contact people at the client from whom the firm can take instruction in the matter. Finally, the engagement letter is also the appropriate place to address the end of the engagement. When and how can the relationship be terminated? What happens to the client files when the relationship is terminated? What about after the matter is completed? 
The engagement letter should communicate the firm's document and file retention policies to the client. And what if there is a dispute with the client over some aspect of the engagement? The engagement letter should include the firm's desired dispute resolution procedures and address the law firm's remedies, including its ability to withdraw from the representation if the client does not pay its fees. Once you've addressed all of these items in a well-crafted engagement letter that has been reviewed by your firm's counsel, what's next? What's next? You send the letter and document this. We have seen claims in our files where the firm prepared a well-written engagement letter addressing these fundamentals, but then apparently either never sent it on to the client or else can't prove that it did. That's not very helpful. Should you seek the client's signature on your engagement letter? That depends. In an ideal world, yes. The client's countersignature indicates that they have received, understood, and agree to the terms of your engagement. Some jurisdictions may require an engagement letter to be countersigned. And certainly, you must ensure you obtain the client's signature before proceeding if your engagement letter contains any conflict waiver. However, in any other instance, you should seek the client's signature only if your firm has procedures in place to make sure the firm receives back a signed copy of the engagement letter. Otherwise, the existence of an unsigned, unreturned engagement letter could create an argument that the client did not agree to the terms or possibly did not even receive the engagement letter. We know of several firms that track the return of signed engagement letters and will turn off billing for the new matter if the client's signed copy is not returned within a certain time period. What about client-tendered engagement letters, also known as outside counsel guidelines? Well, we could do a whole separate podcast on those, and maybe we will. But for now, the thing to remember is that these client-tendered outside counsel guidelines may have problematic provisions in them that conflict with the firm's engagement letter or other obligations. For that reason, among others, lawyers should not agree to a client's outside counsel guidelines without running them through their firm counsel for approval. I should also point out that we have materials available for our loss prevention lawyers to help, specifically our outside counsel guidelines issue matrix, which is Appendix 2.9 in our Prototype Lawyer's Manual. And of course, our Prototype Lawyer's Manual also includes template forms of engagement letters addressing the essential elements we discussed today. This is available to the general counsels and loss prevention partners of Alas member firms on our website. Thanks, Betsy. It's been my pleasure. Until next time, I'm Terry Garland, and this is The Portable Ethics Lawyer. This podcast is provided for educational purposes to assist lawyers in avoiding ethics violations, malpractice suits, other professional liability claims, and management liability claims. This podcast does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. The recommendations contained in this podcast are not necessarily appropriate for every lawyer or law firm. In determining the best course of action, lawyers should consider the applicable legal authorities and all relevant facts and circumstances. Copyright 2018 by Attorneys Liability Assurance Society. All rights reserved.